Chris, the ever fun of LinkedIn messages is uh, continuing. Note I got from somebody not really even asking for anything. You know, says I always come up as somebody that's recommended that they should connect with or whatever, and then I look familiar. But ask then, uh, have I ever been to Sweden for the Nobel Prize ceremony? Reed, I have to say your LinkedIn profile picture makes you look a little European and a little collegiate. Was the Nobel Peace Prize a solicitation? What was it? No, that was it. Just curious if I've ever been to Sweden. Huh. Can you just go? Uh, I mean, there are tickets or like, how does that work? Like, you on StubHub? I think they have a general admission section <laughs> that you can go to. It's December the 10th in Oslo, Norway. But there is a dress code. For most people attending, it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Male guests have a strict dress code. Uh, many laureates make the trip to Hans Ald, a Stockholm-based outfitter, for a white tie and tails that is required for both the award ceremony and the banquet. They say it's often the first time they've owned such an outfit. Well, I know you have a closet full of, of those, though. So do you really have to go to this bespoke tailor? I don't know. I think I have some Jordans that would work, though. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 368. Excuse me, I'm just hanging up my jacket tail <laughs> over here. <laughs> Don't sit on your tails while we're recording the podcast. Don't get all wrinkly. Yeah, I mean, if you can see my desk, I have uh, one of those little stools like you have at the piano, a little piano bench here. I can flip my tails over the back. <laughs> Good times. Well, welcome one and all. Thanks for joining. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Touchpoint. Uh, we certainly appreciate it. Quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. It's where you can sign up for the TPS report. Weekly email with five articles that hopefully are a little value add as you start your week. Uh, we thank you so much. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of fun stuff. We'll pause here. We got a good episode today. We'll pause here. Go let you go sign up for the TPS report over at touchpoint.health and be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you.
All right, Chris. Good episode today. Uh, we got a few things we want to cover and have a uh, have a fun interview that I got to capture here recently with Marty Bonick, my boss, our CEO here at Ardent Health Services. We talk a little bit about innovation and consumerism and just the changing landscape of, of the times. And so that'll come a little bit later in the show. Right now, though, we're all kind of starting a new year and thinking about, you know, what are the challenges ahead, kind of how we think about that, what that looks like. And we found an article that I think takes us through some of those. And so we're going to start and just kind of rattle through really broadly as an industry, what does that change look like on the horizon? Yeah. And namely, what's, as the article is entitled, Top 10 Issues, Keeping Hospital Leaders Awake at Night. I'm wondering about that metaphor of keeping people awake at night. I mean, I get it, but do we want to encourage that as like a metaphor that we use in our space? I don't know. Is that why we have sleep labs to prevent our leaders from lying awake at night. If you're lying awake at night, we have a campaign that addresses that. <laughs> but nonetheless, this is a EKG consultants who are a management consulting group. They actually indicated, you know, there are a lot of factors going on right now in the industry, as we all know about, and you and I have talked about repeatedly on this show, new players entering the space, wave of mergers and acquisitions, integrations, ambiguity around the future of policy and reform, all of this stuff has really truly defined a new healthcare landscape. Mm-hmm. And so they interviewed a number of CEOs and C-suite leaders to ask them exactly what are those stay awake issues, as they call them. Let's kind of go through them. Yeah, we're going to go through these pretty fast. Well, a little bit later in the show, we'll come back and actually talk about how we feel like that the idea of consumerism is impacting all of this. But broadly, the first thing they mention is uh, intensifying margin pressure. So again, it doesn't take long to read the news and see organizations around the country that are losing money. I mean, it gets reported all the time. Just the idea of financial stability is a big one. People are focused on supply costs and all these internal, I guess, driving factors, if you will. And again, there's only so much you can do, right, before you start having to look at how to operate the business differently. Absolutely. And I think a few uh, episodes ago, we cited an article that showed the formula is that our financial margins are getting worse. So that's a big one that I think does keep people awake at night. Another is that shift to ambulatory care. We know that's happening, right? The whole concept of moving away from hospital as being the central place where you go for all your care and moving into ambulatory setting. There is this movement, right, to get to these ambulatory ASCs, retail, urgent care, home care. Home care, big one, right? Hospital at home uh, is a big one that people are thinking about. This really kind of reshifts the way care is delivered. It's, it's very disruptive. And I think a lot of leaders are mapping their way through. I am not saying that, you know, that this is always keeping them awake at night, but certainly this is something that they have to think about as a long-term strategy. How are we going to get there? Next on the list, and again, talk about, you know, operating the business differently, but is this uh, move towards, you know, value-based care, kind of the ACO model or managed populations and kind of what that means, value of value, quote unquote value, they say in here. Ultimately, we're going to get paid differently. I mean, that's probably on a little different timetable for some organizations than others. But again, moving from a fee-for-service world to a value-based world, 
I'm sure does keep quite a few people awake at night. And okay, well, how do we make that shift? That's not how we operate today. I mean, do we need to think about things differently or not? Does everything just stay the same and it's just a different modeling on the financial side? I, you know, I don't know. But again, that's where uh, a lot of this is is moving. Another thing keeping people awake, strained payer relationships, right? We know that that relationship with payers is always tenuous at best. In this particular case, Payer challenges include compliancy with constantly changing policies, spending resources to deal with pre-authorization issues and denials, which is something which the government is taking up a big effort to try to solve right now, the federal government that is, and then working with payers that are challenging to negotiate with. In some markets, this compounded significant issues. Uh, in other places, though, I think we're feeling general leaders across the industry are feeling some pressure around the payer relationship. Next one they mentioned here, number five, workforce competition. Um, I think it's pretty logical that I mean, everybody looks at nurses and doctors and other clinicians and saying, we have a shortage, we're going to continue to have a shortage, we're competing with everybody else in the industry. Well, now we're competing with some non-traditional players, some of the retail giants, et cetera, for some of the same folks. We talked about physician burnout and all those types of topics, but I, you know, I'd go even further and say we're competing for workforce that is some of our front of the house, if you will, workers. They can have a less stressful job potentially driving for Uber or Uber Eats or something like that or working somewhere else for the same, if not better money than being a transport in a hospital or maybe working in food service or, you know, some other kind of administrative roles potentially could all end up elsewhere. And so you're, you're constantly competing. Yeah. I can think on the IT or technical side, even it's coming from all angles, I guess. And it's kind of resulting in some workforce shortages too, that we're seeing nowadays related to that is the leadership required to kind of manage us through this change. This whole concept around the need for capable and visionary leaders is a constant challenge. Some are bringing in people from out of industry, but frankly, many of them don't last that long in the space. How are we going to keep the leadership in place to ensure that we're kind of weathering through all these transitions, particularly with all these other pressures weighing on us? It makes it a very complex world to be a healthcare leader. And so Gaps in that leadership is a, a, a big thing that's still top of mind to health, healthcare leaders. Next one on the list is just org structure in general. I think a lot of folks are probably reimagining, rethinking, you know, how the organization's structured, how we run and actually take care of patients, you know, on the provider side. So you see a shift to ambulatory, mentioned that earlier, right? Well, that that impacts this idea of how do you operate it? Who's in charge of what? Like, how do these things work together? It can't be siloed. Marty and I talk a little bit later about some of the evolving ways that we've thought about or seen some of our departments even shift. And so, again, just org structure in general is a big one, right? It's hard to, quote unquote, standardize that. And think about, too, in this, in this particular case, that shared services, whenever margins are tight, tend to get strapped, right? They're they're really focused on like how do we minimize those costs? We're feeling that as well. This organizational structure optimization can impact that, right? So there's compounding issues. Also let's think about the market, right? The market is consolidating. There's there's a lot of things happening. 
M&A activity. There's outside disruption that's coming into the space. This market is going through a massive shift in consolidation, in mergers and acquisitions, in a variety of different things. And leaders of provider organizations worry about how to further vertical integrations and disruptions from new and non-traditional power players impact all of this. This is really a disruptive factor that's going on that I can see can lead to a lot of sleepless nights. Yeah, 100%. Just expectations of the consumer. Next one on the list. So again, we want to be consumer-centric or orient what it is that we do around the consumer. A lot of that's obviously based on their their expectations. And so you know, we're going to talk more about this after the break, so I won't get you know, super deep here, but how do you know what that is? One, their expectation. And then how do you deliver against that? Again, I think everybody lives their life. And so they probably have some assumptions on what the expectation is, but yeah, that's a tough one. And then again, policy landscapes, the number 10 on our list, ever changing and uncertain policy landscapes that could change very rapidly. If you think about it, if there is a, a major significant federal administrative change right after the election, Many people are wondering what's that going to mean to, to federal regulations. But there's been already movements around reduction of prescription costs, of focusing on a variety of different areas of capitating and containing costs in this burgeoning healthcare industry. How are things changing? How are things going to change in policy as moving forward? I think that that still remains to be seen. And as Reed and I mentioned a couple episodes ago, we're not policy experts for sure, but we know that this is a ever-present theme out there. So these are what's keeping leaders awake, according to the survey, Reed. After the break, we're going to kind of pivot a little bit and reframe these in a way that you and I feel might be the driving force behind all of these changes. And we'll do that right after this pause. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. So before the break, Reed, we outlined 10 things that are keeping healthcare leaders awake at night. I mean, there may be more than that, but those are the top 10 things. So now let's kind of pivot to our perspective on this. You and I both are very much advocates in healthcare consumerism. And quite frankly, as we went through this list of 10, we realized that healthcare consumerism is a driving force behind all of these changes, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it certainly is. I mean, again, if nobody was asking for it, so to speak, we would just keep doing the same thing we've always done <laughs> forever. I'm not saying there wouldn't be any changes. There would be, it wouldn't be quite in the same way. So yeah. So let's maybe run back through that list one more time through the lens of consumerism, if you will. Do you want to start with the first one? Yeah, sure. So margin pressure, you know, we're talking about declining reimbursement rates, et cetera, et cetera. 
That's an interesting one because I think you still have the expectation of the consumer as it relates to affordability. Like they're, they're shopping in a, a bit of a different way or they're shopping, period. And so people are cost conscious. They, you know, they're looking for affordable options. And so again, the healthcare system is going to further, it's going to further keep them awake, I guess, relative to this idea of actually people being consumers. I mean, if you think about it, right, this whole concept of shopping, shopping for care, which we've talked about for years, it really is avidly happening because, quite frankly, there's a lot of options that are not in the traditional healthcare delivery industry right now that are valid, like the telehealth medicines, the the virtual care that Amazon is rolling out. All of these disruptors are creating a marketplace, whether we like it or not. And then because of that, it's putting pressure on the providers delivering the care. It's causing potential shortages in care, and it just compounds the issue further. So I think that's a that's a big one. Okay, let's talk about the shift to ambulatory care. That's kind of an easy one, Reed. We think about that, right? It's really about convenience and access. The whole point of like, do I have to go to the academic medical center in the middle of town to get my care? No, I want to be able to get from this quick care facility that's like three minutes away, or I want to be able to get access to clinical trials in my rural communities. These are things about like driving the shift to non-hospital care settings. And it's really impacting the revenue models of, of care, right? Yeah, hundred percent. And you said it, it's, it's ease of access, it's affordability, even back to the first piece, but you know, folks don't think about healthcare. They don't want to use healthcare. And so when they need it, they need it to be convenient. So it makes total sense. The move to value-based or the at-risk models, if you will. This is an interesting one. I think this builds off this idea of consumerism and shopping, but is this idea that like, okay, if people are taking more of an active role in their healthcare, and this is kind of that shift from sick care to well care a little bit, we hear those terms a lot. This move is really driven through the, the lens of the consumer, meaning like maybe we don't need to see them in a given year. It's more personalized care, maybe. And so it's like, you know, how do you do that? How do you manage a population more effectively? And that's really driven out of the need for consumers saying this is what they want, this personalized care. I think this is a really big place where AI can play a role, by the way. Oh, there we go. We're at minute oh. whatever. We talked about AI. Yeah. But this whole concept around consumers are actually a- anticipating and expecting lower care costs. And we are capitating costs through value-based care. It kind of leads to this concept of like a value vortex. What's the right equation of what value is that could demonstrate the maximum value for patients and payers in this space, right? That's an interesting one. Let's also talk about that strain-payer relationships. Now, that's interesting because the relationship between a healthcare system and a payer, that's so far removed from the consumer. So <laughs> how is consumerism impacting that? This demand for transparency in pricing. There's now federal mandates that we have to put pricing of care on our websites. And that in and of itself is kind of a direct impact on the payer relationship because now hospitals are forced to put out their rate card, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That causes them to suddenly say, wait, where do we fit in the overall market landscape? And why is this payer not reimbursing me more so I can lower those costs in the face of consumerism? 
Hundred percent. I, I don't even know really what to say here. I mean, other than yes, the transparency, the shopping. I mean, it's something we have to solve for, right? Well, there's one other thing here too. Reed, think about this. We're hearing a lot recently about this concept of pre-authorization for care, mm-hmm. and now consumers are saying, "I've had enough," and they've the one they've raised it. Of course, the media has taken it and is bringing it forward. But the whole concept here is that consumerism is driving the demand to change this pre-authorization approach. Now flip over to workforce competition. It all is through this idea, this lens of the consumer, right? And and what their expectation is. And so as they think about how they want to receive care, it's maybe even altering the talent pool a little bit of who it is that we're trying to attract and retain and services that we're trying to provide and, and, and things like that. If people can go get a job anywhere, kind of a thing, or you mentioned AI earlier, you know, impacts different roles and and things like that. Through this idea of what the expectation of the consumer might be, changes the way that we then have to deliver services, which therefore changes the workforce makeup a little bit. I think there's also a sense of consumerism when it comes to your own job, too. The ability to say, look, I've been working as a nurse in this health system for so long, And, oh, by the way, there are now other jobs available to me that are kind of like nursing, but they're in maybe a technology company. I think there's a little bit of that going on as well. Yeah, 100%. And, I mean, just even the access points that we talked about earlier, as people expect different types of access, then that spins up different types of access, right? Yeah. Somebody has to work there. It's diluting the market to some degree of just from a competition standpoint, like you got more jobs than we had before, not more people. The next item on the list, right, is gaps in leadership. But now that's clear that we're seeing more and more leaders coming into healthcare where consumerism is their mantra. And that's becoming sort of first and foremost around how do health systems reorganize their team with leadership and with, this is a later one, right, the organizational structure, towards these consumer-centric models. How do we understand our consumer better? We're bringing in, we're attracting leaders that have better experience around understanding consumer insights, understanding how to design towards better consumer experiences. This is a big shift in, um, that, in which consumerism is driving the reason why we need better leaders in healthcare. Next on the list is the operational structure. Like we've talked about, if people have different expectations of receiving care in different ways, well, that materially changes the makeup of your organization. So we talked about workforce, but from a structure standpoint, what do you do? You think about physicians and their compensation models, how they're paid today versus you know, how do you align them with things like value-based care or different types of more retail solutions or, you know, whatever it may be. It's just a, a different way to think about things. And again, you look at all these departments and the overlap and, you know, kind of how we, we all participate together. We're just going to have to do things a little bit differently to, to kind of deliver on, you know, what the consumer's expectation looks like. So imagine that power now that the consumer has on the healthcare experience, obviously that now bleeds over to this concept of consolidating in the market. A lot of the consolidation is coming from increased cost pressures, competition, but it's also consolidation is for convenience. 
There are a number of organizations that are either merging or considering uh, expanding into marketplaces and partnering with others in order to expand their care to these markets that they that the consumers are wanting. Consumers don't want to drive over bridges in to New York City in many cases. So health systems that serve the greater city metropolitan have to partner with other organizations in the larger surrounding area. And that's just one particular example. Also think about vertical integration by tech giants like Amazon. Mm-hmm. That is like this, this disruptors are consolidating the market too. And that's all driven by this concept of healthcare consumerism. 100%. Expectation. Um, I don't want to have to go a bunch of different places to to, to do all of these different things. And again, that kind of gets us to the next one on the list, which is expectations. You you have a certain level of expectation that is driven by everything else in your life, how you order food at Chick-fil-A to, you know, how you communicate with maybe your kids' schools to just everything in between. I mean, Amazon obviously is an easy one to point to. And a lot of people point to, you mentioned it a second ago. Uh, But again, Transparent pricing, convenient access, personalized care changes everything about what we do. And lastly, that leads to the policy landscape. Many of the policy changes that are occurring and the regulations that are coming from this are really trying to align with consumer needs and preferences. And and many of the people that are making healthcare policy changes are looking to outside industries for ways to shift that, you know, the reimbursement models, the operational practices, the whole concept of value-based care is a direct result of a policy change to support the growing rise of consumerism and containing and capitating the, the growing costs of care. Regulators do know that the equation is not right at this point in time. They have to solve it, and the consumers have a stronger role in this than we all believe. So, you know, I think you and I are really big advocates on how consumerism is kind of shifting the changes and challenging healthcare leaders around here. But Reed, we're not the only people that think this way, right? Many healthcare leaders are thinking this way as well. Yeah, hundred percent. And and like I mentioned earlier in the show, I had a chance recently to uh, have a conversation, at least for the podcast. I have a number of conversations with Marty, I guess, but for the podcast, I had a chance to sit down and pick his brain a little bit relative to how he thinks about consumerism and even innovation and just kind of the evolving nature of, of this space. And so we'll take a pause here. And then uh, when we come back, recent conversation with Marty Bonick, CEO of Ardent Health Services. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, Marty, thanks for coming on, hanging out for a few minutes. Appreciate the time. Yeah, great to be here with you, Reed. So um, for those that are not familiar, uh, you're, you're the CEO of Ardent Health Services. We're based here in Nashville. It's where I work. People have probably heard me mention it. Maybe give people a little bit of, of your background, kind of where you started and, and uh, a little wind up to today. Well, 
back in 19. No, but, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I've, I've spent my whole career in the in called the healthcare industry, um, principally in the health system side of things. I took a, a few years sabbatical and ran a physician practice management company, which was great experience, but glad to be back uh, doing where my love and passion is here, uh, working with health systems. But I started off thinking I was going to be a doctor and uh, ended up on the administrative side of the world, but uh, I've had a great career and uh, starting off working inside of a hospital and then ultimately in a, in a system role and then moving into a corporate role and um, you know now really getting to work with great people across the country helping to, to really redefine how we believe healthcare should be delivered. We, we've both been around this for a number of years and consumerism, I guess, is a term that's existed obviously for a while, but you know, I, I talk a lot about kind of how we're focused and kind of, you know, what we're thinking or how, you know, view of the world and things like that. But is the idea of being consumer centric, has that changed even in and of itself over the last few years? I think so. I mean, since COVID, um, you know, I think that that's been, COVID's been a wake up call for the healthcare industry. On the one hand, we did our best at what we do in times of crisis as, a, as an industry, and we took care of people when we didn't know how to, and we didn't know exactly what we we're dealing with. People rise to the challenge and that, in that crisis situation. But at the same time, there was a lot of people that were unable to access health care, afraid to access health care, couldn't afford to access health care. And a lot of uh, new technologies started to come to light that, that weren't so new or novel, like telehealth. I and mean, we've been doing telehealth. The capability has been there for 20 years. Sure. Uh, we didn't have a payment mechanism for telehealth. And, <laughs> and, and COVID really forced that issue to come to bear. And, and lo and behold, once there's money for it, people adopted it. Um, and it's not because it wasn't available. It's, you know, sometimes you got to follow the cash flow. Um, but but that, I think now that that genie's been let out of the bottle, I don't think people as consumers with choice are going to want to go back to sitting in a waiting room, dealing with other sick people there, waiting and having their time be disrespected or not being able to access what they want, when they want, how they want it, just like we do with everything else in life. And so I, I do think that there's been a turn. And I think that the pandemic was probably the catalyst for that um, to, to really change it from a buzzword that is an industry. I think we all talked about the consumer to actually going, if we don't do it, others are starting to come in and saying, then we will. So that's a really interesting point. I think at least it, I tried. I was trying to think back in my own kind of thought process here, but consumerism, I think, initially meant they could do more things online, right? There's like scheduling or even chatbots to some degree a few years ago. But how does that evolve the thinking on how you actually serve a community? I mean, our organization we serve you know pretty defined, medium-sized communities, and you know these people want to be there and live there. And so, how, how does that kind of change the thought process on how you serve those folks? Yeah, well, I, I think about again from a customer. We're all customers in our daily lives. We choose what we watch, where we eat, where do we shop. You know, we, we consume you know things and information all the time, and we get to choose. Healthcare historically, we've had this. We have built it, and you must come. And that's what people did because that's that's how the system worked. As people are seeing, there's more options. You know, they want the same thing from their healthcare system that they want from their everyday life uh, as a consumer. I want access. I want convenience. I want affordability, uh, and I want it when I want it, how I want it. You know, and so it's sort of that instant on-demand you know culture that we live in. And, uh, you know, I think about myself as a consumer and having had a, a little event where I got to, to be a real patient for, 
for a while um, really sort of opened my eyes up to you know just how much the industry as it has existed doesn't work. Um, we don't value people's time. We don't value people's money. We don't mm. value people's input to the process. You know, you're discharging. You're saying, okay, you've got a follow up appointment with your doctor next Tuesday at two p.m. Did you ask me if that worked for me? Like, I mean, <laughs> where, where does that work anywhere else in our life? But in healthcare, mm-hmm. we've kind of tolerated it because that's how it worked. And now other people, your, yeah. your Amazons are coming in and saying, hey, you can, you can have an online appointment uh, just like you can online shop and you don't have to go to that shopping mall from the hours of you know, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., you know, Monday through Friday or what have you. You can do this 24-7 at your convenience. And so I think you know, that, that Amazon culture uh, is a catalyst to the industry to say, like, we have to do this different. Otherwise, somebody else will come in and, and do that. And I think it's, it's interesting. You mentioned COVID, but I, I've got a family member that you'll get kidney infections from time to time or whatever. And I remember them saying, I'll probably just tough it out or drink cranberry juice or whatever, yeah, yeah. because I don't want to get out and go to the doctor's office or whatever. And, and I said, I'm sure your health plan probably has a telehealth option. And it had never dawned on them before, right? Like it existed to your point. Mm-hmm. They did it and they were like, oh, huh. That was pretty easy. It's like, so I don't have to go in and I don't have to do, you know, so again, I think people's eyes kind of got opened a little bit too. The payment mechanism was one, but then I think it forced people's hand even from a utilization standpoint. And then so I think people are rethinking probably all of it, quite honestly, of like, do I really need to do this? Mm -hmm. You think about well visits. Well, why do I want to go to a doctor's office where everybody's sick? When I know I'm not for a well visit, you know, and so I I don't know, it's just an interesting way to to kind of start rethinking about how you deliver some of that care. Yeah, I mean, it's just there's there's so many opportunities for for us to rethink the system. And we've got a relatively trained population of this is how it's been. So, yes, our, our insurance plan offers. Uh, telehealth visits, and um, I've used them before, but you know we don't have on the whole a ton of utilization because people assume that I've got to do a doctor, and is it really worth toughing? You know, am I going to tough this out, or am I actually going to go through the hassle of taking time off of work, going sitting in an office and doing it? Or I know in three or four days this cold will go away, or this virus will right. go away. But if, if you don't have to suffer, if you know that it's out there, and so what do we do? I mean. It's what I do. I, I go to Dr. Google and I start, you know, here's homeopathic remedies <laughs> right, and here's right. over-the-counter things I can do. And I'll go to CVS and clear out the, their shelves to try all kinds of, you know, combinations of different cold medicines to, to do it when I could have got an online visit, got the antibiotic or, you know, prescription mm-hmm. I needed and, and, and taken care of it in one stop and had more certainty. But uh, you mentioned also the, you know, people that have maybe what seems to be an urgent issue, but maybe a chronic issue. And I think mm. this is where... As health systems, we have the opportunity to recapture that. So as people realize that as a consumer, they, they don't have to go to the big brick-and-mortar facility for everything. There are other options to access care remotely, um, you know, an outpatient facility, virtually, what have you. It's the connectivity and that longitudinal relationship that, that we as a health system should be that trusted partner. Um, if I go to Dr. Google every time I have something, Dr. Google is not looking at my search history and going, hey, you know, Marty, you've come back and you've asked about similar things like every other week. Maybe there's something else going on here, and this is more than just <laughs> yeah. an urgent care visit. But but that's where in the absence of health systems, you know, trying to embrace the consumer as the person at the center of everything 
point solutions have come in and saying, we're going to do this service much better than the health yeah. system does. And, and a lot of them are. But, but that's where they fall down is the interconnectedness and, and seeing those patterns, those trends, uh, what happens when somebody needs something beyond the point solution. Most of us don't live, you know, our, our chronic conditions may not live in a point solution world. Um, and even though that point solution is really good, it's missing out on the continuity of care that, that we can offer as a health system. So I think if we can really embrace putting the, the person as a consumer at the center of what we do and build systems around their needs, not our needs, uh, that's where we really have an opportunity to, to change the game and really enfranchise them from going to from Dr. Google to Arden Health System for, for their first point of access to look for that care. Is that innovation? It's going to take innovation uh, to, to, I think, um, adapt our processes and technologies, but it's, it's innovation without you know, a strategic intent behind it is just novelty. You know, there's lots of cool, innovative gadgets out there, but if I don't really have the need for that, I, I can play with it and be entertained by it, but, but it kind of gets put on the shelf. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we, we need innovation to spur the industry, but it's really got to be connected to a strategy of, of how are we, you know, directly embracing the patient. Otherwise, I think it's just novelty, and it's like, oh, here's a, a press release that, look, look what we did. This is really cool. Right. But nobody's really using it, or it, it, there's not stickiness to it. So I think innovation without strategic intent is just novelty. Yeah, I like that. And I think, you know, everybody's a little bit different. For us, obviously, we... we um, um, you know, have Epic as our you know, kind of core operating system, clinical operating system, if you will. And so you mentioned the kind of interconnectivity or interoperability between all of these things mm-hmm. um, and not just being point-based solutions. And so I think that is where I've seen that at least the last few years may not be doing it well, but people are at least trying to figure out like, hey, it's going to make more sense if this stuff all ties together, right? Yeah. Uh, and that may not really be innovation, but but it's it's incremental or it's it's practical innovation. It's it's evolution. Um, you know, I've I've had this conversation with Epic, as you said, mentioned. We're we're a big user and a big customer of theirs, and I see Epic kind of like I see Apple, the iOS system on our phone. Mm-hmm. Um, that phone is pretty good when you open it up right out of the box, um, but it's the apps that you put on it that make it yours, make it personal, make it better for what you need. Mm-hmm. And you know, and just like Apple, um, when they see something that's getting a lot of adaptability, magically it sort of gets integrated into their next version of their operating <laughs> system. And you see Epic kind of doing the same thing. But I think. In absence of that, you know, consumers want something that's easy. You know, the, the, the benefit of an Apple interface is you know how it works. You don't need an instruction manual for every app. It's logical, it's intuitive, and it all works together. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I think in healthcare, um, sometimes we've over-engineered or over-innovated to the point where it's like, well, this is really great, but now i got to carry around a flip phone to go with my smartphone <laughs> because that flip phone yeah. can do one thing really good, but it's yeah. like, I don't want to carry two phones. Yeah. Um, you know, and so that that's the challenge I think we have um, with, with all the, quote, innovation that's flooding the market and, and the disruptive technology coming in is if it's not really integrated – the, the user adoption, whether that's the, the, the caregivers delivering care or the, the patients receiving care, if we don't make it easy, mm-hmm. that adaptability or adoptability is not going to happen the way it's intended, and, and it's not going to be as effective as, as the innovation was intended to be. And we've seen that with wearables, right, right. through the years. It's right. like when you first see the stuff, it's like, oh, that's cool. Yep. But then you start digging in and you think, okay, well, do you want me to stand on the scale? 
but then I have to do something after that? Mm-hmm. Or like I just stand on the scale. Well, no, we need you to do this and upload the thing. Right. And di- it's like, all right, I'm out. Right. Like I, I'm, I'm I, out. I've got point. a ring. I've got a, I've got a smart <laughs> ring. I've got a smart band. I've got a smart watch. And they're all sitting on a shelf somewhere. I, I've got my Garmin that I use for yeah. training. But it's like this has other purposes to me. But all the other stuff, it, it's kind of cool. But, yeah, it's it becomes more hassle than it's worth it, at some point. Yeah, and I think the novelty. Piece. You mentioned it, right? It's it's uh, you know how many hours did I sleep last night? And it's like, well, that's fine, but I don't know what do I do with that? Right. Like, is that actionable information? It's the insights coming out know. of the data that's important, not the not the te- the technology itself. Without the insights gained from it, is is just technology. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Before we kind of wrap up here, I, I mentioned earlier, and you, and you mentioned this as well. You've been doing this for a long time. I think. You know, it's really funny, and I, I've given this example before, but I remember, um, I think I was 25, 26 years old. I went as the director of marketing at a small hospital in Texas. And then I also was the Studer Group Initiative Champion for patient experience because they couldn't figure anybody else to give it to, probably. And at the time, those felt like two very, very different worlds, was this marketing and communications thing and then this experience piece. What's funny, all these years later, it's hard to really delineate where one starts and the other one picks up. And and I could say the same thing about IT or finance or uh, clinical ops or all these things. It just seems like it's harder and harder to define where what, you know, people that listen to this show, a lot of marketing communications individuals, but like, you know, what are your thoughts and advice around you know, how they think about their job, right? We've talked about this consumer centricity piece, but, you know, when you're thinking about what you do for an organization and how you work across that organization, um, have you thought about that much in recent years? Yeah, I mean, every everything is blurring together, like you said, and, and changing and evolving. And I, I've, you know... I've always believed in sort of evolution versus revolution, you know, in this mm-hmm. industry because it, it didn't happen. It didn't get the way it was overnight, and it's not going to change overnight. There's no silver bullet to change the industry, but it's kind of like if you ever, you know, look at the cross section of a tree and you look at the rings. Well, every year a new ring is created, but you can see sometimes you know there's there's more space or distance in between based upon the environmental conditions and you know sometimes oh, you're going to grow a little bit more rapidly sometimes you're not going to grow as much and if you think of your career like that you always want to be growing but but i think you know particularly for for those earlier you know sort of growing in their career don't get so focused on your job that you lose sight of your career potential mm. um, you know and i think we we all are you know hopefully passionate about what we do and and love what we do and 20 years from now, I can't tell you how AI is going to change your job, but it's going to. Um, and, uh, you know, and <laughs> yeah. so if you're so in love with your job as it is, that's great. But if, if you're in any type of intellectual job, I mean, the world is evolving and you've got to evolve. And the skills you bring are, are as important or more important than the, the actual functions that you're doing because your, your function will change. I mean, you've been with us couple of years and how many times has your role changed <laughs> well most days <laughs> yeah, I feel most, like, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah but but again i think that's that's the opportunity and, and you see you know oftentimes when you see people plateau in their careers it's because they've gotten so focused on doing what they do that they they've lost sight of the opportunity mm-hmm. to personally grow and, and if you're going to grow you, you have to evolve you have to change organizations don't largely stay steady they're, they're constantly evolving and changing and if you can have that adaptable mindset and flexible mindset, then then 
good people are always going to have opportunities to grow their career. Um, but when you hunker down and say, no, this is my role and this is how it's got to be done. And this is what I think, you know, that's, that's when, you know, you, you marginalize your potential. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think that's really great advice. I do. I, I had somebody not long ago ask me, did you always know you wanted to do this? You know, and they were going into college or whatever. I said, well, to be fair, the internet didn't exist when I went to college. So, so no, is the answer. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that's an interesting kind of way to think about things and, you know, hopefully folks, uh, will hear that, um, you know, whatever role that they're in, it does not mean that it's not going to have, you know, new opportunities and bleed into other areas and, and things like that. And so I know everybody's worried, quote unquote, about AI, but, I think technology has proven over time that it creates more opportunities and yes, it will cause change and mm-hmm. yes, some jobs will look drastically different or may not exist, but that will yield great new productivity opportunities for us to expand and do things we never even thought were possible before. But it's, it's having that continuous learning mindset. Um, early in my career, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, you're, you're in your early 20s and there's this wanderlust of, uh, you know, the, the potential and what I mm-hmm. want to do. And, and I read a series of articles and there was a, a term or a fad at the time of uh, the chief knowledge officer. Uh-huh. And I wanted to be the chief knowledge officer because I was, a, you know, really into data and information and connecting the dots and what have you. And, and um, you know, that, that term and role lasted about a nanosecond in my <laughs> career history. And I, I don't know if such a thing still exists. I've not seen or heard of one. But, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, may, maybe that will resume again. But, uh, but you know, again, uh, the business world is evolving. We have to evolve with it. And, and if, if you've got that open, adaptable mindset, there's a ton of potential for upward growth. Very cool. Well, thanks for coming and hanging out for a few minutes. I look forward to having you back on, but appreciate the time. Yeah, great to be here with you, Reed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. Well, special thanks to, to Marty for coming on the show. Certainly appreciate his time. Um, always enjoy, you know, getting to hear from him and, you know, fortunate to, to see and hear kind of his thought process play out on a, on a pretty regular basis. So excited to have him look forward to maybe having him back in the future. Let's do this. Let's do some recommendations uh, before we, uh, before we get out of here. Yeah. Reed, I'm going to recommend an email that I get on a weekly basis I may have recommended this before a couple of years ago. You and I have talked over the last couple of episodes a lot about policies, and we self-attest. We're not really high up on regulation and policy. However, a gentleman in our industry is, his name is Paul Keckley. Oh, yeah. And he does a weekly report called the Keckley Report. It's a newsletter that gets sent out every week about the same time the TPS report comes out that basically covers some of the regulatory and policy changes that are happening in the industry. It's totally valuable or invaluable, I should say, to, to me to keep abreast of what's happening. And quite frankly, you know, I read it often and sometimes some of our podcast topics are inspired by some of the things that he's reporting on. Not only does he report 
on what's happening in the latest trends, what's happening on in Capitol Hill, but also statewide changes. He also adds to the top of all of this perspective and his viewpoint on why these changes are occurring, what it could potentially impact for us in the future. So for those of you who are listening in who want to be uh, informed about what's happening from a regulatory and compliance perspective, I strongly suggest you sign up for the Keckley Report. And you can get that on his website at paulkeckley.com, K-E-C-K-L-E-Y.com. You can just subscribe right there. That's my recommendation this week. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, Paul's great. He's a former Nashville guy. He lives, I think, up in the Carolinas now. But I was at Vanderbilt and had a chance to hear him speak a time or two. And that that is a great way to to potentially keep up to speed. So, all right. Um, I'm going to recommend a podcast on wherever you can find a podcast, I guess, uh, called Pretend. You heard of this podcast? No. Tell me more. Pretend. And so each season, uh, it's about, it's a true crime podcast about con artists, basically, right? Who claim to be somebody that they're not, I think is how they describe it. All right. So each season's kind of like a investigative journalism kind of a, kind of a feel. Oddly, I got promoted to me, I guess, through some of the other podcasts I listened to season 12, which is actually a few seasons old, which is kind of odd why that one in particular got promoted to me. But in any case, it's called The Stalker, and um, it's a couple that's uh, terrorized by a cyber stalker for years. And so, again, they don't use their real names and stuff like that on there. Their attempts to get the police involved are documented, and they think that maybe the wife has a split personality, kind of like, you know, the calls are coming from inside the house kind of a thing. Anyway, it's it's really fascinating. So if you like kind of the true crime thing, you like the serial nature of of a podcast series for like a season, you know, it's like a start and end to it and that kind of thing, episodic, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's a good one. So again, you can check out some of the other seasons as well, but maybe start with season 12 uh, called The Stalker. It's called Pretend. Wow. I remember there was a rash of television programs or, you know, programs on Netflix and streaming programs about scam artists and other things. I didn't realize there was a whole podcast behind it because I have to admit that's a little bit of a guilty pleasure of mine is to learn how other people get scammed. I don't know what that says about me personality wise. Yeah, it's a business opportunity, maybe. <laughs> Find one that's working well. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, well, thanks, everybody. Hopefully you enjoyed the show today. Uh, we certainly appreciate the feedback that we get. Uh, again, the TPS report over at touchpoint.health. Track us down on LinkedIn. We love to hear from you. Their show topics, if there's individuals we should have on, things like that. Uh, If you will do us a favor, rate, review, subscribe, uh, maybe share it with a friend. That's still the number one way that this thing gets bigger and, and, and more listeners. And we certainly appreciate that. So Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.